Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing, you've guessed it, the latest in the coronavirus crisis. We'll be looking at how the government is doing on testing. Will it hit its 100,000 tests a day target by this time next week? Plus, there's a new test, track and trace program announced by Matt Hancock, which offers a hint of how the UK is going to exit the lockdown. Plus, we've also heard that Boris Johnson might soon be returning to work. And when he does, he's facing a cabinet split about how and when to end the lockdown through a potential three-stage timetable. We've also got Rishi Sunak's pledge to help small businesses, the first sitting of the virtual parliament, and Keir Starmer's debut at Prime Minister's Question Times. To go through all that, I'm delighted to be joined remotely, of course, by our political editor, George Parker, columnist Robert Shrimsley, and global health editor, Sarah Neville. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then do subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. And thank you once again for sticking with us throughout these unusual times. We hope the quality is listenable. Testing has been a constant problem for Boris Johnson's government. When the coronavirus crisis hit the UK, it originally began by testing everybody diagnosed or suspected of having the virus. But as it spread rapidly throughout the country, testing focused on frontline healthcare workers. And consistently, the government has struggled to hit its targets. Eventually, Matt Hancock said that the government would have 100,000 tests a day by the end of April. With one week to go, it has the capacity for 51,000 tests, but it isn't testing anywhere near that number of people. So what's going on? Sarah Neville, could you just begin by just taking us through what's been going on with testing inside the government? Why is it struggling to get those testing capacity levels up? And particularly, why is it struggling to actually test enough people? Well, I think the initial issue was that the UK or England certainly operated a model of using very few laboratories to process tests because it very much had kept it as an operation in the public sector. And even though, as it increasingly transpired, a lot of private companies had been offering up their diagnostic capabilities, the government had been slow to involve them. Now, ministers changed tack on that some weeks ago now, But nevertheless, they've been struggling to set up enough actual centres for people to undergo these tests. And it's this capacity problem that they are now claiming 
to have largely sorted. This morning, they've gone live with a website. Matt Hancock said on the television this morning, it's going to be just like booking a flight. You go on and you get your slot. But I suppose you could ask what could possibly go wrong. And in fact, as far as I can see, quite a lot is already going wrong. People are reporting that they can't get into the site, that it's crashing. So I fear that this is a problem that still has some way to go before the government entirely gets a handle on it. George Parker, Matt Hancock made this big pledge when it was really felt the government was losing control of the narrative over testing and was losing sympathy with the public, perhaps, when people weren't really sure about what was going on with testing. They made this 100,000 a day pledge by the end of April, which was met with a lot of scepticism for some of the reasons that Sarah set out. At Thursday's press conference, the health secretary pointed out that the capacity has now reached 51,000, which is an impressive jump from where we were at the beginning of the month, but the actual levels of testing still aren't really there. And Downing Street's been quite tricksy with the language here, talking about, will it test 100,000 people or just be able to test 100,000 people? Yeah, well, I think people are right to be sceptical because the lack of testing capacity is one of the reasons where we are where we are at the moment in terms of our response to the epidemic. At the start of the crisis, we had capacity of 1,500 tests a day. That was back at the beginning of March. So the idea of getting to 100,000 seemed very implausible and The fact that earlier this week we were still only doing about a fifth of the tests needed to reach that target made people especially sceptical. I think you're right, there's been a bit of muddying of the waters between the capacity to test and the actual tests, which Sarah's just described. But it's important to say that on the record, repeatedly, number 10 has said it's referring to the number of tests actually carried out. So I had a strange conversation with a minister this week who sounded incredibly confident they were going to hit this 100,000 target, so they were going to smash it. Now, As Sarah was saying, the big push is on to try and find people who can actually take these tests and are able to actually get to the testing sites. I think that's the real problem. But ministers do point out that the infection rate is falling quite sharply in the country, which has made it harder to find people in the health service, particularly who actually need a test at the moment. There's a big problem in the care homes, as we know, of care home workers not being able to get to the testing sites. But nevertheless, it does feel like, at least in terms of the capacity the government might be getting towards the 100,000 target by the end of the month. Because Robert Shrimsley, when Matt Hancock was talking about the testing capacity, also talked about contact tracing. And it felt like this missing piece of the puzzle were coming together about what the next stage of combating coronavirus is going to look like. Because when you look at all the other countries, particularly those in Asia, about how they've avoided the very strict lockdown regimes we've seen in the UK and other European countries, it's all been to do with testing as widely as possible and tracking and tracing infections where they pop up to isolate and make sure they don't spread. Now, at the beginning of this crisis, the government and its health officials were saying that contact tracing wasn't suitable. Yet by the time we reached yesterday, we had another change of direction and we're now hiring 18,000 contact tracers, including 3,000 medical staff and creating a shiny new NHS app that will do exactly that. So combine these two things together and when the lockdown is eventually lifted, it, it sort of feels as if we know that's what it's going to look like. The question is, is it going to work? Yes, I think that's exactly right, Seb. I mean, I think for some weeks now, we've known that what they call TTT, testing, tracking and tracing, is the only path that offers any kind of sustainability 
if there is no vaccine or treatment. At the start of this crisis, I think there had been 290 tracers in public health England. That number had been falling. Now, as you say, they've got to get up to multiple thousands. And that means these people have to be hired, they have to be trained. But the key principle of this, and it's very nicely set out in the Scottish government's paper published on Thursday by Nicola Sturgeon, which says the whole aim here is to stop outbreaks becoming clusters and clusters going completely viral. The whole premise is you have to find people who are infected, find out who they've been in important contact with through this contact tracing app, which they hope everybody will put on their phones, and then get them into quarantine or self-isolation as soon as possible if they need to be. And I think that is clearly the only viable strategy once we get out of any kind of lockdown. But they have, at every point in this crisis, been just a little slow off the mark. If we knew that was going to happen, why are we only just getting to the process of hiring the 18,000. You know, the app has been in process for a while now, so that's encouraging, but we don't yet know how well it works. And one of the reasons I think there is concern is that at every point, people are looking at what the government says it's going to do, and it seems to run a few weeks late. So if you're looking at easing lockdown in the middle of May, people are legitimately saying, well, is all the infrastructure going to be in place to make this easing manageable? Now, on the question of the infrastructure, Sarah, the Department for Health is not only a health service, also become an app provider. And this little skunk work unit known as NHS X has been working on this app with Google and Apple, which will do contact tracing. And essentially, my understanding of it is you've got this app on your phone, you're out and about and you're near someone for a sustained period of time. It will take the details of that person and, and all those people you're around. And if they are diagnosed with coronavirus or have symptoms, and have to self-isolate, the app will then automatically ping all those you've been in contact with to let them know too. What's your thoughts on, is this app going to be ready? Is the NHS capable for such a complex technical scheme that really goes beyond things it's ever done before? I think the NHS always likes to develop its own technology in-house, but I think that there are clear privacy issues around this. And I'm picking up some concerns amongst the technology companies that there will be too loose privacy controls in the app that the government is seeking to develop internally. Because obviously, concerns about privacy are absolutely key to whether this gets the mass take up that is required to make it remotely effective. I believe even in Singapore, which is obviously a much more easily directed society than our own here in the UK, only about 17% of people have actually taken up the tracing app. Can I just say, Seb, it is very touching to hear the tech companies being concerned about privacy. (laughs) It's a bit of a, a reversal, perhaps, on what one might expect. Fascinating. Now, Robert, if we could just flip back to Nicola Sturgeon for a moment. You mentioned earlier this paper and a press conference given by Scotland's First Minister a couple of days ago. And this has been widely praised across the UK for doing what Downing Street hasn't done, which is on the record to set out what an exit from the lockdown strategy might look like. Now, some people say that we in the media are too obsessed with this. But the fact is, we're a month into this lockdown and there are signs everybody can see them around them day to day that people are starting to get fed up and the rules are not being adhered to at the level they once were. You know, being queue open this week to allow people to go and get their couponol or new patio furniture or whatever it is. And Nicola Sturgeon was praised for having an honest conversation about this. What did you make of what she said? And will we see anything similar from Downing Street? 
I thought she was very impressive in the way she's manifest. And I think throughout the crisis, she is a Rolls-Royce political performer. And I think what they set out in Scotland is a very clear set of stages and a framework for decision making for the kind of path they will take. In truth, it's not a particularly surprising framework. And most of what is being said in Scotland is also being said by the UK government. The only difference is it's being said by the UK government privately and in conversations with journalists rather than publicly set out. And I think that's the major difference. And there is a sense that the British government is infantilising a little bit the public by saying, oh, we can't discuss what's next because you might start to rush and do it. It's rather like saying, I can't tell you what's for dinner because you'll get hungry. What Scotland has set out is a grown-up conversation with its citizens. We all know which way this is going to go, the nature of the easing that will come, the stages to it, we roughly know. What we don't yet have is any firm date. And I think that's the key issue. And to me, it's a question of cart and horse. If you don't have the tracing and testing set up properly and viably and have confidence that the system is robust, then any steps towards easing are essentially a suck it and see process where you say, let's open up a bit and see what that does. Okay, let's open up a bit more and see what that does. Let's hope it doesn't overwhelm. Let's hope it doesn't take off. So I think the structures of easing are fine and they're not wildly different between Britain and Scotland. But unless you have really robust systems in place to stop those clusters turning into full outbreaks, then it really is just licking your finger and sticking it up to the wind. And a lot of this comes back to Downing Street's approach to media and communications, which is to put everything down to three word slogans. Stay at home, save lives, save the NHS. Now we have another one in test, track and trace. And it doesn't leave any room for nuance there. And one thing we've heard this week as well across Whitehall is their concerns that people are staying away from hospitals, that in fact people are adhering too strongly to the messages of staying at home because being successful in making sure the lockdown has worked obviously has repercussions. Now, George, this plays into the fact about what's going to happen with Boris Johnson. It's been two weeks or so since he left A&E come Monday, and there was a lot of talk he's going to be returning to work very soon. And when he does, he's got something of a storm to deal with. Yes, I mean, there's speculation in the Daily Telegraph on Friday that Boris Johnson could be back at his desk in Downing Street as early as Monday. And certainly all the anecdotal evidence you're hearing from ministers is that he's in very good form. He managed to have a remote audience with the Queen on Wednesday. He spoke to Donald Trump in what I'm told was quite a baroque phone call. One official in Number 10 said they couldn't say what was discussed until they retired. It sounded like maybe it was a bit of a risque and um, rambunctious exchange between the President and the Prime Minister. But I think certainly you hear from Donald Trump that Boris Johnson is in good form and ready to get back to work. And when he does get back to work, there is this big thing Robert was just discussing there about when the lockdown starts to lift. And There are two things, aren't there? One is the timing. This goes back to the famous R number. We know that the R number now is below one, maybe at 0.7. This is the reinfection rate. You have got this cabinet split you alluded to earlier, Seb, where some ministers, including Michael Gove, the cabinet office minister, and Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, take the view that you could start to ease the restrictions while infection rates were still relatively high. You could run things hot, in inverted commas. So the health service runs near to capacity, but they believe below capacity. And you have people like Matt Hancock who say it has to be much closer to zero because you can't be sure that things won't run out of control, the data, there's a lag. And of course, you need to have the testing and tracing capacity up and running as well. And then, of course, you get into that wider question about how exactly you phase the lifting of the lockdown. And I think there's less mystery around that. You can see what other countries around Europe are doing. Typically, you'll start with primary schools, then you move on to construction and manufacturing. And eventually, at the other end of the scale, you end up with 
nightclubs and massage parlours and all the rest of it. So that's the basic framework, but nobody really wants to do any of that until Boris Johnson's back at work, and that could be sooner rather than later. Indeed, because, as you said, George, there is this big split down the middle of the Cabinet, and although people are very keen to say, oh, people just having a good debate and there's not really a difference of opinion, there really is this fundamental question about the R-rate, Sarah. Now, can you just explain to us in a bit more detail where the NHS thinks we currently are? Because Nicola Sturgeon, I think, said it was somewhere between 0.6 and 1. What does that actually mean? Because we obviously get the daily death rate and the daily number of tests and diagnoses of coronavirus. Where roughly do those figures need to be before we start having a proper conversation about when the lockdown is going to end? Well, the R rate is quite simply how many new infections are stemming from every individual confirmed to have had the disease or not even confirmed to have had the disease, but who is actually suffering from it. So if you get the R rate to one, it means each infected person infects only one other person. And certainly the NHS would be much more comfortable if we could actually get it below one. The whole issue of NHS capacity was absolutely key to the introduction of the lockdown. And it's going to be equally key to any decision about lifting restrictions, as George indicates. At the moment, the NHS does seem to have come through this first wave surprisingly strongly, or certainly more strongly than many people had feared. It did act very decisively and aggressively to free up additional beds. And so far, that seems to have left it with an ample margin. The terror, of course, within the NHS was that we would wind up like Italy with quite simply too few beds to treat people with dignity. And that very much hasn't happened. We are still in a surplus of critical care beds and other beds. There are signs of pressures, nevertheless, continuing within the NHS, one of which is ambulance response times. Ambulances are taking longer to respond to each call out. But in general, this is a time, I think, when NHS leaders are by and large breathing a sigh of relief that they have weathered this storm. Even these vast field hospitals that sprung up within a matter of days, an extraordinary logistical achievement for the NHS, have actually barely been used. Which in some ways gives more to the argument of the likes of Rishi Sunak and Alok Sharma, the business secretary, that because of COPE now, then the NHS is better prepared to cope when people are moving more freely. Now, Robert, there's been some suggestions and briefing from Downing Street, as they like to do, on what might happen. There's this lockdown traffic light system. I think it originally came from a university paper, and it's also been called a three-stage exit strategy, where you have a red, an amber, and a green phase. And essentially, the first stage would see very few changes, just basically being allowed to leave their homes more than once a day for shopping or exercise and some non-essential shops would open, but generally society would be shut down. Then you'd wait for three weeks, look at the data, maybe wait for another three weeks, and then you move to the amber phase where schools go back and people start going back to work again. And then again, you look at the data, you wait another three weeks, see what happens. And then you keep doing that until you get some point to what has been called a new normal where pubs and restaurants are open again, but everybody's still expecting some form of social distancing to continue until there is a cure or vaccine for COVID-19. What do you make of this kind of strategy? Does it make sense? And how do you think the British people react to that kind of staged approach? 
I think it does make sense. And I think given the way people have reacted so far, they will probably react reasonably well. Obviously, there's much more scope for confusion about what you can or can't do. And that will be a concern to the government. I know there's also deep concern about just how long you want to keep children out of school and denying them an education. So I think it'll be quite a lot of pressure to bring that forward, although how schools can practice social distancing in the classroom is going to be an interesting test and how one teacher can teach two different classes at the same time because they're physically elsewhere. I do think, however, what's been set up is something of a false choice. The notion that you either have to get the economy back to normal or focus on saving lives, because the truth is this is a virus that scares people and people don't understand whether they're going to live or die if they get it. And so... The notion that the economy will pick up and that people will start doing many of the things they did normally before, while they still think they are at risk, is a very difficult one. Certainly, I'm sympathetic to the argument that you need to squash this down as low as possible before you start lifting the lockdown and to have the tracking and tracing and testing infrastructure, because that is how you reassure people that it is safe to go to the hairdressers, to get on the tube. And the other issue is, I think you have this potential divide in society between those people who are able to work safely from their homes and those particularly in major cities who have to get on the tube, who have to get on the buses and have to expose themselves to risk, mainly for financial needs. A lot of these people are desperate to get back to work because they have to, because they need the money. And I think that's a very troubling concept for society to address once we begin to get out of this, if the virus is still raging. Now, George, Conservative MPs are also increasingly ill at ease about the lockdown. They've been making comments both in public and in private. There was a rather testy meeting of the 1922 committee this week where they made it known that they really want to try and get the economy moving again. And this is because their post bags are absolutely filled with their small businesses who simply aren't able to keep going. And despite all the help offered from the Treasury in terms of guaranteeing small business loans, paying wages, helping to furlough staff. They just don't feel as if they're going to be able to survive. You had a fascinating story this week that Rishi Sunak is considering going further again and offering 100% loans for small businesses, which again, is a very unconservative thing to do. But it just shows how much unease there is in the country and in the Tory party about the lockdown and the effect it's having on the economy and business, not to mention the public borrowing figures that look as if debt is going to absolutely go through the roof over this the next couple of months in this year. Yeah, as you say, over the Easter recess, to the extent that MPs have been able to be in contact with their constituents, they're being bombarded with concerns about small businesses going bust. And I wouldn't say it's a massive rebellion or massive political problem at this stage for Boris Johnson, but certainly there are some Conservative MPs, particularly I should say on the sort of uh, more on the right of the party, sort of more on the libertarian end of the party, who think that restrictions have gone too far and need to be lifted now. I would say the majority of the mainstream of the Conservative Party buy into the kind of argument Robert was just explaining there, that you actually do need to squash the virus before you start to lift the restrictions, economic as well as health reasons. But nevertheless, one of the things they have been particularly focused on is the strain being felt by small businesses, the so-called mum-and-pop companies, which might be employing four or five people at most. So places like pubs or shops or haulage companies basically the backbone of the Conservative Party in the country. And they've been clamouring to the Treasury to go further to try and make sure that loans come through to companies. There's already a scheme in place for small companies, which guarantees 80% of the loans issued by banks. But nevertheless, because the banks still have 20% skin in the game, they're imposing credit checks, as you'd expect, on companies. And I was speaking to um, 
Marc Francois, Tory MP this week, he said, typical case where a pub had been asked by the bank to provide a, a cash flow forecast. And pub says, well, I don't know when I'm going to reopen my business. How can I possibly tell you that? Loan refused. So the Treasury has had to rethink its quite vehement opposition, really, to the idea of 100% loan guarantees. And we're told the Chancellor Rishi Sunak is considering going to this 100% guarantee for companies with a handful of employees borrowing up to £25,000. It's obviously risky because you expose yourself to a great deal more fraud, because the whole object of this exercise is to make sure that banks aren't carrying out excessively stringent checks on the people who are borrowing the money. But nevertheless, the Treasury is hoping that the uptake of that scheme won't be massive because there are other schemes available, grants, furloughing schemes, and all the rest of it. They sort of see loans very much as the last resort, but it has caused a fundamental uh, rethink by the Treasury. And finally, very quickly, Robert, we had the first sitting of the virtual parliament this week, which Parliament returned from its Easter recess, and they've put together this elaborate plans to allow the House of Commons to continue sitting thanks to the Zoom video conferencing software. And the actual chamber itself has been mocked out with tape and physical barriers to enforce the social distancing guidelines. And ministers are still at the dispatch box. The speaker is still in the chair, along with the mace, the symbol of the Commons authority. But the vast majority majority of MPs are speaking remotely and they've talked about this on Tuesday with not much opposition and we had our first signs of the virtual parliament on Wednesday with PMQs which also happened to be Keir Starmer's debut as leader of the opposition. What did you make of it all and how did you think Sir Keir did? I for one was actually pretty impressed at how smoothly the whole thing ran. Yes, I think that's right. I think it worked. Obviously we haven't yet had contested votes to deal with and we haven't yet had debates. We've only had statements and questions which are easier to manage but what they've managed so far I thought worked reasonably well and it's incredibly important that the government hear from MPs both opposition and their own side about what's going on in the country and that MPs have the chance to press ministers about problems of the kind George was just describing. As to PMQs obviously we didn't have the Prime Minister there we had Dominic Raab standing into him but I think the general consensus and certainly my view was like yours that Keir Starmer showed a certain forensic skill which we would have expected from him and a degree of confidence in holding the government to account over the areas where it has failed to meet its promises. Some people rather excitedly start to immediately say, well, yes, yeah, the return of opposition after years under Jeremy Corbyn. And, you know, one swallow doesn't make a summer. But I certainly think we got the sense of an opposition beginning to get its act together. There's a long way to go. But there's a lot of questions this government needs to be needs to answer. And we have more chance of seeing it held to account if the opposition is robust. And the first signs of that were promising. I think the other thing we saw from Keir Starmer was the fact that he had this insight. It's not a particularly blinding insight, but it seemed to evade Jeremy Corbyn, which is one of the jobs you'd have to fulfil when you're at the dispatch box as leader of the opposition. It's not just to ask questions which prove you're concerned about people using food banks or austerity, but you've got to look like a government in waiting. And I think that was the big things you took away from Keir Starmer's debut. He actually realises you have to look statesmanlike at the dispatch box and not just make cheap political points. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to George, Robert and Sarah for joining. In the meantime, if you like what you've heard and like to see some more FT journalism, then do find all these subscription offers at ft.com forward slash offer. We're also conducting a wee survey to see what you do and don't like about this podcast. Send us your thoughts, good or bad, to ft.com forward slash politics survey. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Breen Turner. Until next time, thanks for listening, stay safe and keep well. 
we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.